I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You're on Team Human, a safe harbor from the storm of disinformation, a headspace and a heart space where we celebrate the uniquely human ability to make sense of the chaos, forge understandings across sacrosanct boundaries, and envision a way through the despair to renaissance. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, in the last known interview before his passing this year, legendary counterculture satirist, comedian, and founder of The Realist, Paul Krasner. I, I did both satire and investigative journalism, but I didn't ma- label them because I didn't want to prevent the readers from discerning for themselves whether something was journalism or satire because I didn't use the word then, but satire was fake news. Paul shared how cognitive dissonance mind-fucking, as we used to call it, may be our best hope for waking people up to the horrors in which they're participating. It's not too late to intervene on our own behalf. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. I'm still basking in the afterglow of our canonization by Reverend Billy and the Church of Stop Shopping last weekend. I've been a friend and fan and co-conspirator of Billy's since the great e-toy protests of the mid-90s. And over these decades, he's gone from a satire of Reverend Billy Graham to a full-fledged theatrical preacher and choir. And here they are at Joe's Pub celebrating a demonstration they just did in the shopping mall at Ground Zero in Manhattan and canonizing yours truly and the whole team. We believe... That the reason it was successful, because we believe that for days after our action, everybody that works there, including the security, would be talking to each other about how the earth came and rotated through that oculus. They will all talk to each other about it. Were you there? 
each other. They will talk to each other. And that connection, making people connect inside of shopping. Amen? Making people talk to each other, reach out to each other inside of shopping. That is what Douglas Rushkoff teaches us to do. And he is our saint today. Saint Douglas Rushkoff. Douglas. Oh, I'm going to come down here and I'm going to get you. And we're segueing into the... In the tradition of Edward Said, in the tradition of Cornell West, I'm not exaggerating at all. This gentleman has taught us how to reconnect with each other despite our addiction to products coming out of Silicon Valley. That's saying a lot, isn't it? Do we have any addicts of that kind here? Amen. Lovelujah, let's work on it together. Will you speak into this microphone, please? I'm here as a, uh, a member of Team Human. And this is the greatest expression of Team Human I've ever witnessed. You know, this, this riot is not a protest. This riot is a celebration. And it turns out a celebration is the most frightening thing to those who would wield power over us through separation and control. You know, shopping is not just our addiction, right? Shopping is their way of putting objects between us. At best, we can connect over some great new device. Look what I just bought. And we both look at that instead of doing the truly dangerous thing, which is looking at each other. Or even worse, or even worse, raising our voices together and forging something greater than any individual can be. A team, a choir, a church. So thank you, Reverend Billy. Thank you.
Thank you for bringing us together and helping us find the others. Can you hear that beat? Uh, can you feel that beat? Oh, justice. Oh, change. Can you feel that beat? Uh, can you hear that beat? Oh, justice. Oh, change. Can you hear that beat? Can you feel that beat? We're doing another event with Reverend Billy and the choir, a Team Human Live at WNYC Green Space, March 5th in New York. It's free to subscribers, and we'll have details up for you soon. In 2016, the United Nations declared access to the internet to be a basic human right, right up there with shelter and food and water. And while many of us may have access to an internet, none of us really has access to the internet. And that's because there isn't one. Thanks to surveillance and customization technologies, each one of us gets our own internet. Your Google search results are different than mine. Your feeds show different posts and ads than mine do. Even if we subscribe to the same sources, your news apps, they deliver different news to you than mine do. They're prioritized differently and they're from different political perspectives. And this, I would argue, more than anything else, is what makes it so difficult for us, for, for Americans in particular, to engage in anything resembling civic discourse. It's not the content, however sickeningly racist and sexist and nationalist and scapegoating or call out all the tweets. It's the platforms. The problem with our net is that it changes based on who we are. It was hard enough back in the days when we all had different perspectives on what's going on. Now, not only do we have different perspectives on the world, but we're also being shown different worlds. How could we forge any semblance of consensus with people who aren't even looking at the same realities? That's why I think to fix the net's influence on political discourse. We need to end the automated customization of everything we're looking at. Customization, that's the net's original sin. It's a practice that was originally called one-to-one -one marketing in a book called The One-to-One -One Future by some customer management consultants. That's what they called themselves, Don Peppers and Martha Rogers back in 1993. And this was before the web even existed. Their big insight was that Augmenting email marketing with a good database would somehow turbocharge direct marketing into a behavioral science. So instead of managing products, marketers could now manage customers by bringing them ever more accurate depictions of whatever it is those customers really want. 
Back in the 90s, it really just meant better, more directed spam. That's what the whole customization thing was here for, to make spam better. And the web, it was still neutral territory. It was still a place where we all saw the same ads and content. Anyone who went to a particular site saw the same ads. That's until they figured out how to install cookies on our browsers, which told every website who we were, where we'd been, what we'd done. And from that moment on, customization became the ethos of the net. I mean, that's one thing when it's applied to marketing, right? That's what marketers do. But it's another thing completely when it's applied to the news and information that we use to understand the world. We end up in this feedback loop between ourselves and the algorithms that have been assigned to us. So slowly but surely, we progress towards these more extreme versions of ourselves, and they're exacerbated by the fact that the stories and images we receive are irreconcilable with everybody else's. Worse, they change based on how we react to them. Reality, as depicted by the algorithms, is itself a moving target, and this makes us even more unsettled, more, more vulnerable. There's a whole lot of brilliant people out there and policymakers who are looking at different ways of mitigating the Internet's amplification of all this extremism and disinformation and hate. Twitter's refusal to run political ads, though a bit vague maybe to operationalize, it's a still a nice start. And so too are Facebook's efforts, I don't know if they're well-meaning, but their efforts, their efforts to manually or algorithmically check posts for the most egregious content, like live-streamed massacres and beheadings. So that's a good beginning, right? Fewer beheadings on social media is a good thing. But the content, the disinformation, while it's upsetting, it's not fundamentally untethering us from terra firma, right? We may have always been living in our own reality tunnels to some extent, but the media was part of what brought us together. You know, in the print and TV eras, we might have chosen to read The Times versus The Post or NBC versus Fox. But in the digital media environment, these realities, these these configured biased realities, they coalesce automatically without us consciously controlling them. It's beyond our ability to intervene. And that's because like most of us know by now, the platforms we use, they know who we are. They know what sorts of things we're likely to engage with. All that surveillance they're doing, it's not for the companies to know who we are. They don't care who we are. They want to know what we're going to respond to. We're like rats in a psychological experiment where each of our responses to a stimulus is measured and recorded, and then the results, they're interpolated into the next stimulus in this increasingly refined Skinner box of classical conditioning. So as we train the algorithms that serve us our content, we're being trained ourselves. We're receiving confirmation bias of every assumption, every taste, every weird belief. So yeah, the content we see may be better customized to our individual impulses. You get cats and I get dogs and my daughter gets alpacas. And that's valuable for marketers who want to make sure we each get ads that depict their products in accordance with our sensibilities. But where we get into trouble is when 
the rest of what we see, like the news, is subjected to these same customization routines, and they end up reinforcing all of our projections from vaccination safety to the extinction of the white race. According to the logic of one-to-one marketing, the successful customer relationship means reflecting back to each person the reality that will get them to respond to the call to action. So it might be appropriate for entertainment or advertising, but it's not for a public service like the news. It's the equivalent of dispensing medical advice based on a person's individual superstitions instead of clinical data. Neil Postman, one of my mentors, he warned us about this back in the 1980s, that if we allow news to be ruled by the economies of entertainment, we risk amusing ourselves to death. That's the title of one of his biggest books. And this is the same spectacle that social philosophers argued about from from the Frankfurt School. They were pleading with us to reject this. When a government becomes a form of entertainment, only the most entertaining leaders come into power. The thrilling emotional appeals of the dictator or or the raging rhetoric of the demagogue, they overpower any rational appeals. We end up in a situation like just last week when Devin Nunes, when he can criticize the legitimacy of the impeachment hearings on the grounds that they were boring and that they had bad ratings. Right. This the fact that the hearings had bad ratings was his evidence that the impeachment had no merit. It was not entertaining media. When we get used to the idea that our news and information should always be entertaining, we start to make our choices that way. Who would be more entertaining, Trump or Biden? Customized spectacle. It, it might be okay on Netflix, but it's not a great way to conduct democracy. It's actually, it's not even great for Netflix. I can't talk about an episode of Maniac I just watched with anyone else because they're at different places in the series or they haven't watched it yet. At least on Netflix, I can choose to watch the same shows as my friend. On platforms from Google and Facebook to Apple News, my stories are selected for me by algorithms based on my previous behavior. If I stop clicking on stories about war or or about climate, then wars or climate will eventually be excluded from my picture of the world. If a MAGA supporter wants to believe Trump's claim that America's cities are infested, then the algorithms will figure that out and deliver this version of reality to them. And it's not just them, right? Progressives are having just as hard a time in this digital media environment. We get clustered together, again, by the most crudely defined versions of our common interests, and we end up incapable of adopting a nuanced approach to progress. Algorithmically amplified wokeness demands an instantaneous, complete conversion to an increasingly restrictive set of cultural demands. You know, we have to respond immediately and correctly to each new outrage, or we risk the wrath of social media's enforcement wing, itself less a squad of people than this emergent phenomenon. You know, not that there's any grounds for comparing the shaming orthodoxy of progressives with the violent extremism of the far right. There isn't. 
But all of us are trapped in these customized filter bubbles without the means to connect over anything real, particularly with those in bubbles that conflict with our own. Instead, we have to conjure up these figures that represent some version of our shared terror over the changing ground, whether we pick a real threat like climate change or a manufactured one like George Soros. The abstracted, panicked, and hallucinatory manner in which we're relating to them is the same. And this all makes the one-to-one communications landscape a propagandist's dream come true. As Jacques Ellul explained in the seminal work, you got to read it, Propaganda, the Formation of Men's Attitudes, he said, when propaganda is addressed to the crowd, it must touch each individual in that crowd. Customized Digital media finally gives marketers and propagandists alike the ability to reach the individuals, not just through discrete messages, but through the creation and confirmation of the mental realities in which they live. And clearly, such activity favors those who rely on fear and outrage for their influence. The answer, as I see it, is to make customized news illegal. Platforms cannot be allowed to deliver information based on who they think we are. They have to deliver the same news about the world to all of us. If we want certain kinds of stories filtered or emphasized, we should be doing this ourselves, the same way we pick which cable channel to watch. Maybe we should get some kind of a dashboard to configure the kinds of stories we receive. But it shouldn't be done for us, no matter how much more engagement that provokes. And under no circumstances can a platform make choices about what stories and images it delivers to us without at least disclosing to us the criteria it's using to do so. Navigating the digital environment is difficult and lonely enough. We can't let its individually customized realities convince us that we truly live in different worlds. We don't. There is one thing going on here. We're in this together. I'm honored this holiday season to offer this gift. It was a gift to me, my last conversation with legendary satirist and 1960s counterculture publisher Paul Krasner. Paul started his free thought magazine, The Realist, back in 1958. He was a merry prankster on the bus with Ken Kesey in the 60s and the founder of the Yippies. He's stand-up comedy protege of Lenny Bruce and hero to Kurt Vonnegut, who once put it this way, and I quote, with the Vietnam War going on and with its critics discounted and scorned by the government and mass media, Krasner put on sale a red, white, and blue poster that said, fuck communism. At the beginning of the 1960s, fuck was believed to be so full of bad magic as to be unprintable. By having fuck and communism fight it out in a single sentence, Krasner wasn't merely being funny as heck. He was demonstrating how preposterous it was for so many people to be responding to both words with such cockamamie Pavlovian fear and alarm. Unquote. In 1971, five years after Lenny Bruce's death, Groucho Marx said, I predict that in time, Paul Krasner will wind up as the only live Lenny Bruce. It's my pleasure 
to bring you Paul Krasner. It's so great to speak with you. I think the last time we really spoke was when I had this other, uh, I had a radio show on WFMU called The Media Squat, and you were the first guest, and we got disconnected maybe 20 times, and you sat through all of it. Uh, there's there's so many things I wanted to ask you, though. You know, I just read, finally, that when you were like six years old, you played violin in Carnegie Hall, and at that point, at least, you were the youngest person ever to play at Carnegie Hall. Is that, is that a, a true story? Oh, yeah, it's true. Uh, it changed my life. Because I was playing by rote. My violin teacher would poke me in the chest and said, violin up, violin up. I started playing the violin when I was three. And I didn't really want to play, but my, my brother did and he got attention. So I thought I would too. Because what? So you're this is a nice little Jewish boy playing violin. Somehow doesn't correspond with the rascal that you turned out to be. What turned it on, what made the change was... Uh, in the, from three years to six years, uh, I didn't have a childhood. I was just playing and practicing. And I, I, and I really didn't like it. My violin teacher would say, now make X's on a piece of paper. So on the subway going to my violin lessons, I would, on the subway, I would just make X's on a p piece of paper. And he said, oh, that's better. What happened was uh, at the Vivaldi Concerto, uh, I, I suddenly felt an itch, my left leg. And I knew that I wasn't supposed to uh, stop and scratch my leg with my bow if I wanted to be a, a professional. And so my, my instinct was that I could stand up on my left leg, balance on it, and scratch it with my right leg. I did it on, on my instinct. You know, because I couldn't stop. But the audience saw that I was standing on one leg and scratching with the other without missing a single um, note of the Vivaldi concerto. <laughs> <laughs> and so they left. And that's what woke me up. And it was and it was like a, a beautiful all kinds of, you know, all different people had different kinds of laughing. And I knew laughing was good. But here was like a, an orchestra of laughter, you know, coming from all different people. Some people snort and some people giggled. And it woke me up and I woke up to the uh, laughter. And I realized I didn't have the vocabulary to call it, but I realized I had a technique for playing the violin, but I had a passion for making people laugh. So I just drove him crazy after that. I realized that he wanted me to be his, that he would control me. And I realized, I, I always will remember when, when he said, it's not right for you. And I realized as I saw adults coming that then, I would see that they all wanted to control me. So I just made people laugh. I didn't know about comedians then, but that's what I wanted. You ended up growing up and then and was one of your first jobs working at Mad Magazine? Was that, is that what you did out of college or what? I had a, a job while I, while I was in college. A journalist, Lyle Stewart, had a paper called The Independent, and, uh, and it was a, uh, a, in tabloid form, and it was against censorship, which I liked. So I, I got a job working for him, putting books that he was selling, and I would just wrap them up and just do little errands. But he, he was a fan of William uh, Gaines, who was the publisher of uh, Mad Comics, it was then. And he got an, a, a letter back from Bill Gaines saying he was in awe 
of Lyle. So they became friends and they moved uh, from Times Square to uh, the Lower East Side in the Mad Building. And they were both on the uh, floor there. It was even known as the Mad Building. Lyle and Bill Gaines, they they didn't want to have the censorship of comic strips. So they changed it into Mad Magazine, where they didn't have to have any kind of... Um, right. The standards and practices and censorship weren't at play because it was no longer a kid's... Uh comic book. Exactly. The first thing I did, I remember, was I just would do the script and it would be given to, assigned to uh, an artist. And the artist did a great little thing on it, on it you know. It was really, I, I was thrilled uh, about it. And actually, years later, when when I was doing The Realist, I was in Disneyland and, and Disney had just died. It, it, I, I assigned the the artist, it was the same one who gave me the first piece in in Mad. Uh, he did it, and it was Wally Wood. I just felt that all of the characters, the Disney characters, then were um, suddenly their lib- libido was freed. So I just gave him a um, an assignment to do. Um, the Disney orgy, basically. Yeah. It was Wally Woods Disneyland Memorial orgy. I think it was called. Yeah. And I made a poster out of it when people just suggested it because it looked so good on, uh, in the magazine. But the thing was, I was doing the scripts, just a few, uh, as a freelancer for mad, uh, magazine. I want, I wanted to give a script of, about pros and cons about unions and he said, no, 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 that's, that's for adults. And I went to Bill Gaines, the publisher, and I complained about it. I said, you know, and he, and he said, well, you know, we just reached a million and a half of circulation. And it was virtually all teenagers. And so, of course, he didn't want to uh, change it. In fact, I said to him, uh, I guess you don't want to change horses in uh, midstream. And he said, not if the horse has a rocket up its ass. That really woke me up again because I realized, and I said that there was no satirical magazine then. There was no satire magazine in America, as they did in other countries. Punch was in England, uh, uh, several other countries that had satire magazines. So that was the moment when I, I realized, and it was conceived at that moment when I went to the publish a magazine that was for grown-ups. Well, did you feel like you were you were being motivated by the need to entertain? In other words, that political satire would be even more funny and entertaining to people? Or was it sort of the, the social justice warrior in you that was looking to comedy as a way of expressing necessary political uh, ideas? Uh, I would just do what struck me as uncompromising. I just wanted to publish stuff that made me either laugh or, you know, anything that was hypocritical or cruel or bizarre, just things that I wanted to share with other people. It started with 600 circulation. And the first individual who uh, subscribed to it was Steve Allen. And Steve Allen sent out a bunch of subscriptions and a whole group of them. And Lenny Bruce was uh, one of the first ones that he got. And and then Lenny started sending a bunch of uh, subscriptions to his friends. And that's how it did it. I didn't have any advertising uh, budget or any, but um, 
it was all just by mouth. Lenny Bruce was just another guy in the stand-up scene that you hung out with, or was he already a star at that point? I saw him on the uh, Steve Allen show, and uh, and I had heard about him. When he came to New York, he called me. I met him at a uh, funky uh, hotel in the Times Square, and I had just interviewed uh, Albert Ellis, who was a psychologist. You weren't interviewing Albert Ellis for The Realist, were you? Uh, yeah, you yes. were. So he was talking about his, you know, rational, emotive, whatever therapy with with you yeah. for a realist piece. Huh. Exactly. Yeah. And one of the things he said um, that the word "fuck" was not exactly a negative thing because "fucking" was a good thing. And he said he had his idea that it, it was really, if you wanted to say something to, to somebody, you could, you should say to them, "unfuck you." I, I gave Lenny in the hotel a copy, of, an advanced copy of that. He said, how do you get away with that? And I explained to him that the Supreme Court had um, just recently then said that obscene uh, was okay if you had some kind of social context that it had to be. And that made it okay if you had prurient interest. And Lenny said, prurient and I said, yeah, it's and he said his suitcase was on his bed in in the hotel room and he opened up the, his suitcase and it had a huge uh, uh, dictionary, an unabridged dictionary. And we turned it up to uh, prurient because he had never heard that word. And at first he said it said something like itchy. And he said, what is that like? Is that, <laughs> uh, you know, one of these novelties that they, they would sell, uh, you know, like the, the dribble glass. Right. That, you know, just, and, and he loved that. And so he, he, but then he saw the next one where he said, uh, where it said prurient was a um, intensity of sexuality, aroused your sexuality. And he said that, uh, well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong? You know, we agreed that there was nothing wrong with any kind of prurience. It was, uh, in fact, it was a good thing. And so he was going to perform a town hall in New York that evening. And he asked me to give out copies of it uh, in front of the, um, the town hall. And he brought a copy on the uh, stage and, with a copy of it and talked about it and use, using the language uh, that was uh, taboo. And the town hall people said they're never going to have him again. And he said, oh, yes, they will. They, they got a, a full house. And it was true. They, they booked him again. And he didn't get arrested that night, I guess. No, no, not yet. But then, but then when it started, he would get arrested uh, on uh, obscenity, even though it had the social value, because what really was the cause of him getting arrested was making fun of religion, religious leaders and the hypocrisy uh, of it. And, but they couldn't arrest him for, for the religious targets of, of his comic but there were no laws then for blasphemy. And so they had to use that, that thing. And that's when he began to get arrested. And then somebody uh, in another town, uh, they would uh, have him and, and they would bust him each time. One that did not want to have uh, the vice squad telling the nightclub owners, they didn't have comedy clubs then, but they had nightclubs. In Chicago, uh, they had uh, a vice squad. 
and he warned him, he's the manager, and said, if you have this guy talk about the Pope or anything like that, uh, you're going to lose your uh, liquor uh, license. And um, other nightclubs began to get afraid that if they booked him, they would lose their liquor license. And so there was a fear uh, on that basis. He, he knew he knew he would tell cop that was busting him and said, look, I, I know you're just doing your job. You know, he really understood. And he said, I love the law. And when he uh, began to ha- to lose all these gigs then because they had nightclub owners that were afraid, he-, he was stunned. All this was going on really before the psychedelic era, right? This was before LSD. This was more than New York pre-60s culture. I mean, who did you have as as your role models, you know, by the eighties and nineties, we were all using you and Abby Hoffman and Tim Leary as sort of our, you know, they were the fathers of our counterculture. Who were yours? Uh, Oh, there were um, Lenny and uh, Richard Pryor, George Carlin. And the interesting thing is that there were comedians who uh, were influenced by the realist. Uh, George Carlin, who had always he's been playing the hippy dippy disc jockey things and doing all kinds of stuff that he was doing uh, in Las Vegas, but he wasn't really doing what he felt he wanted to do. And, and the realist, he said, gave him the influence that he would be what he really wanted to to talk about. And the same thing with Louis Black. Louis Black started uh, reading the magazine uh, when he was, I think, maybe nine years, something like that, or or 15. But that area, he was a kid. And he was shocked with the magazine, but delighted that it was obviously uncompromising. And so he was influenced. So for a lot of you, then, you weren't sort of walking in someone's footsteps or emulating some person from a decade or two before. You were kind of uh, moving into new ground, uncharted turf. Oh, yeah, exactly. I made it up as I went along because I didn't have any role models. This was before you did stuff with the Merry Pranksters in the West Coast and all? Oh, yeah. They were uh, – Ken Kesey was reading the magazine and people on the bus, the, the psychedelic bus of the Merry Pranksters, they would pass the magazine around and I, I knew about them. I met Kesey the first time in 63 or 65 on the Berkeley campus and and, and it was like the, one of the first uh, teachers that was going on. Jerry Rubin uh, was in Berkeley and called me and asked me if I would come out there and do an MC. And I said, sure. And he, and he said, hey, could you get Norman Mailer? I gave him Norman Mailer's phone number and he called him and he and he came out there. And I, at that time, I had published an article in, in and this was a serious article. I, I did both satire and investigative journalism, but I didn't label them because I didn't want to prevent the readers from discerning for themselves whether something was journalism or satire, because I didn't use the word then, but satire was fake news. Right. It was you were doing the original fake news. But then, you know, and I've I've got the realist collection and you look back at your account of... um I'm allowed to say this, I guess, your your account of Lyndon Baines Johnson fornicating the exit wound on JFK's skull while they're on Air Force One bringing the body back. And there's no hint, other than to try to not believe that this happened, there's no hint in the writing of it that this is fake news, that you're making this up. 
That's right, Douglas, but it was done in, in a seduction form. So I started uh, with things that were true in it. This was the parts left out of the Kennedy book by William Manchester, who did a book about the assassination of JFK. It started off with Lyndon Johnson saying that Joseph Kennedy, that was his father, who was selling I think it was liquor, but LBJ said that Joseph Kennedy was ambassador, I think it was, to England, but he was in favor of Nazis. And this was true. And then they, there were things that journalists knew, but it was taboo uh, that he was having an affair with Marilyn Monroe. But that was a secret. That was a taboo that it's not like now. And so it was built up like a seduction. And it get, it, first it got the, the, the true items and then the items that journalists knew. And it was the seduction was getting them, the readers to, to accept it until uh, I got the description you just did beautifully about when LBJ was on the plane going from Dallas to a hospital in Maryland. In it, it was explained in the article, the Warren Commission realized that there was a, a hole in the front of his throat. And I had, to, I had Jackie Kennedy describing this to William Manchester, and she said that she saw Lyndon Johnson bending over JFK's corpse, that LBJ was inserting his penis in the throat wound. And this shocked people. It was just stunned because for a one moment, because of the seduction, they felt that they believed it, if only for a moment. Even uh, Daniel Ellsberg, who did the... Um, the Pentagon Papers, yeah. Yeah. He, he said he even believed it for a moment. And I said, really? He said, well, I think I just wanted it to be. I still now, decades later, people still mention it because there was nothing like it. The biggest taboo that was passed around. People stole stole copies from the library. It was, it was really something. Yeah, but as an image, the thing is, it's something that once you hear it, you can't unhear it. You can't unsee it. You know, your mind creates the image, but then it's there. And as far as activism's concerned, I mean, what we know now about fake news and how it works on the mind and people see a fake news story, and even if later they know that it's not true, some part of them still does believe it because, you know, there's no fake news in nature. You know, it's on an evolutionary level, it still rings true. So there was a method to the madness. It wasn't just, oh, this will be fun to make people think this for a second. There was also a sort of an activist intention in putting people's minds through this, wasn't there? Oh, exactly. But what happened was there was a change from satire to activist when I interviewed a man, a doctor uh, named Dr. Robert Spencer. I promised him I wouldn't identify him, just described him as a humane doctor because people, women who were pregnant and didn't want to be, and they saw that interview with Dr. Spencer and they, they were pregnant and they didn't want to be. So uh, with Dr. Spencer's permission, I, I became an underground referral service. And I got called before two district attorneys 
And I said, I better call my lawyer. But I called the doctor and the doctor said to me, uh, they're lying. They didn't have any anything. So I went back. I knew they were bluffing. So I went back and they said, what did your lawyer say? I said, oh, he said that I, that I should not say anything to you. He said, OK, you can leave now. What a lot of district attorneys do, they just fake <laughs> another kind of fake because I was just doing what I felt was the First Amendment. You know, I was just telling people that somebody's telephone number. Some of the stories said that you got to the point where you were running a clinic, but you never actually ran ran a abortion clinic. No, no, no. I just I ran a underground referral service. Right. But I felt that that was the First Amendment. And so that was the criterion changed me from a satirist to an activist. Right. And at one time I, uh, I called an operator because I thought my phone was being tapped. And she asked me, the, the, the operator said, well, why would somebody be, you know, tapping your wire? And I explained what I was doing about uh, running an uh, abortion referral service. And he said, oh, you do? Could you give me that number? It's because this operator was pregnant and didn't want to be. But here, these were women who didn't want to be pregnant. And I could help them. It was something that you could really do something. It wasn't abstract. Are you worried for us now? I mean, do you feel that we are more insane now than when you were first trying to wake us up in the early and mid 60s? Or are we more awake? Have we advanced? Oh, yeah, it, it takes different forms. You know, uh, there were the yippies. Uh, but there was then later on, there was the occupiers. When it when you talk about the counterculture, there have always been a counterculture They just take different forms. There were the bohemians, uh, the beats, the hippies, and then the yippies. The hip-hop, you know, they're all counterculture, uh, uh, but just took different forms. And and so I don't know what's going to happen after the hip-hop. A lot of things that happened in the in the counterculture of, of the hippies, they, they were the ones who started organic farming, made their own clothes. Several of them would would have the same use the same car as a group and they would have candles instead of electricity. It was individual. Uh, it, it was communes too, but it was a matter of people realizing, breaking through the society that was afraid of, of breaking taboos. And the interesting thing now is it's happening now in a way that you can see. Um, in the 60s, there were people, they had to shave if they wanted to be on, uh, let's say, a, a reporter on TV. But now the, the mustaches and goatees is a fashion now. So there are all these things that are changing now. And Abby Hoffman used to say fashion is fascism. But then he grew a beard. So mm. who knows? <laughs> I kind of want to know, as, as someone who has been through a couple of more turns of the cycle, I guess, than, than I have or most of our listeners have. I mean, do you feel like we are making progress or is this does the world just kind of work with a culture and a counterculture and oppressors and liberators and it just sort of meanders on? Do you see us, you know, moving towards more emancipation, more greater consciousness and greater rights? It feels to me as if, at least in this moment, that, you know, America is on a, on a really kind of bad trip. You know, we're, we're confused. I know that, uh, you know, Timothy Leary used to say that uh, the Internet is like LSD and it feels like maybe um, 
we are all on LSD or all of America's on LSD, but utterly unprepared for the trip, unaware of how their set and setting is really influencing this uh, mass hallucination that we're, we're undergoing. Well, you know, I didn't know that marijuana would be legalized. Not only started with medical marijuana, but now it's recreational. And there are people of all ages now that do it. It's just amazing to see how how more powerful is pot now than it used to be in the 60s. I think it's going to be a battle because it's such a huge thing now that it's such an industry and and a lot of a lot of the owners of these dispensaries they may not even be smokers themselves it's just an uh, an investment i mean sometimes it feels to me though that the the only reason that they legalized pot or that now that they legalized you know gay marriage is because that's sort of the positive side of living in a surveillance culture you know if they want us to submit to a surveillance culture that we're in now where every phone call and every internet behavior, everything's being tracked and monitored, that they'd have to at least legalize pot or legalize gay marriage because this is the stuff that everybody's doing anyway. This is a time when everything is speeding up. Google is taking the place of memory. I mean, there are all of these these things that that are going on now, you know, that I had at one point, I had 5,000 friends, in quotes, who uh, were in my Facebook. And the reason they were, I didn't know any of them, maybe a few here and there, but they knew my work. But then they they began to bother me and I realizing that they were getting in the way of my work <laughs> and the irony was just leaking out of it. So I dropped it. I, I quit Facebook, Google. Amazon and YouTube. There are three media aspects that are changing the world, but they're all like tools. And like any tool, a hammer, you know, a hammer can be to build a house or it can be to bang somebody on the head. There are all of these conspiracies that are, I, I do wonder if, if, because there are fake conspiracies. I mean, I can't even trust Snopes now, but that's really not true. I, uh, it's just a fake. <laughs> I, I wonder what will happen. Will, will fake ever stop? Is it just part of the, the way, you know, for pranksters to make use of these things? They get a kick out of it. If that phenomenon is true, that the sort of the bad thing at least exposes which direction not to go. The fact that we're coming to terms with the idea that anything on TV, anything on the net may be fake, it may not be real, that's sort of forcing people back into the real world. The only place that you can trust a phenomenon is something that you're experiencing and witnessing yourself and everything else take with a grain of salt. Like I, th I think that Trump is insane, but I, but I think he's also insanity that is narcissism. His narcissism is inside out. You know, everything he says to Hillary Clinton that he said he she was a crook, uh, but he was just giving his inside out. Uh, right, he just projects onto everyone. Pre right. Precisely. Yeah. What he says about other people are the things that he does. And so this joke about narcissism Trump it was in the um, elevator that he has, and he goes down, down in the elevator, and then somebody rings uh, the, the bell on the elevator, the door opens, and a woman gets on, on that floor. And as she gets in, she says, you're Donald Trump. You're Donald Trump. Oh, I, I, I would love to give you a blowjob. I'm, I'm telling you, I, I give the best blowjob in the world. 
please, I, I, I have to, I have to give you a blowjob. And Trump says, yeah, but what's in it for me? <laughs> and uh, I thought that was narcissism at its best. <laughs> It's a, a, a joke worthy of Paul Krasner. <laughs> so anyway, it's a very exciting time now because I think that this this is a historical time, I think. You don't know exactly how it's going, but I find myself that I'm optimistic, actually. You know, it may be because I took LSD 300 times and that made me optimistic. Who knows? It's like if you don't have hope, there is no hope. The way I feel now, and even though that, you know, in Russia they had uh, 88 journalists have been killed. Here the worst uh, can be uh, fake. All of the marriages uh, where uh, somebody cheats on their spouse, that's a form of fake fakery. What's going on is absurdity and tragedy, and it's just two sides of the same coin. And yet, you know, it, it's going on. All of these things are, are changing and it's entertaining and scary and you want to get in on it. It's a very interesting time to be alive. All my, all my complaints are luxuries. I know. Well, maybe more of us can start thinking that way. And uh, that, that would certainly fill us or make it easier to get filled with hope and play rather than just despair and, and paralysis. When I started The Realist, I felt that I could not be the only one who had the kind of irreverence that I liked. The two things that I remember from college, one was Philosophy 101, and the professor said that his definition of uh, philosophy is the rationalization of life. And I like that. And the other one I remembered was uh, in a, uh, it was anthropology. The professor described the, uh, about happiness. And he said that happiness is having as little as possible of a space between work and play. And I'm lucky to have had in my lifetime that aspect that I have had no separation between work and play. And it's been very lucky. Danny Goldberg um, is a friend of mine who uh, also has pod podcasts. On his podcast, he said to me, well, what about these guys, you know, like Allen Ginsberg and, and a whole, he did a whole bunch of names of people who were my friends. And But he knows I'm an atheist and I don't believe in an afterlife, but he said, uh, but he does. And he said, what about these, these friends of yours uh, who are religious in their own way and they believe in an, an afterlife? He said, do you think that these friends of yours, that they're um, delusional? Uh, it was something I hadn't been able to articulate, but I said uh, spontaneously, no, I don't think of them as delusional. And I said, I think they're optimism. I don't think of what people believe, but rather what they are kind or not kind. So it's what they do, not what they believe. Well, thanks. Thanks so much for uh, for coming on Team Human and for everything you've done over the years. You're an inspiration to many of us. And uh, I do think humor plays such an important role in keeping us alive. We we forget, you know, it's not trivial. It's it's core. Yeah, it's uh, and it's a two way street. You know, uh, it's all a mystery to <laughs> me. <laughs> but I love the mystery. <laughs> 
Thanks for joining Team Human. Our guest today was the late Paul Krasner. You can find out more about Krasner and all of our guests at teamhuman.fm, where you can also support the show just like David Jones, Dancha Foley, Simone D'Arcy, Brad Zeffrin, Serene Yamahira, Ben Wedmuller, Michael Ward, Greg Hertzke, and Kurt Nichols. Thank you all for being on Team Human. Thanks to Luke Robert Mason for spending massive hours editing the interview with Paul Krasner. We'll put the original file on our Patreon feed just so you can hear that conversation in its raw form. And thanks to Joshua Chapdelin, our producer. Most of all, thanks to you listeners. None of this would be possible without you. Thanks for giving us all purpose and direction. Team Human is a production of the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at Queens College. My monologues all appear on medium.com slash team dash human. Our opening theme is by Fugazi, and the music under me right now is by Team Human original Mike Watt. You've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.